Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Today we'll be talking with Kim Comer about a Catholic Anabaptist reconciliation movement, and with Anika Prather about classics, classical education, and race in America. Kim Comer is the editor of Plow's European edition, about which you may hear more soon, and the European Outreach Director for the Bruderhof Communities. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. Kim, you've been working for years in Austria and Germany as Outreach Director for the Bruderhof with other churches and movements. And one of the culminations of the work you've been involved in was an event last November in the cathedral in Vienna, the Steffensdom, with the Archbishop of Vienna, Cardinal Schoenborn, uh, Heinrich Arnold from the Bruderhof, a senior pastor, and the representatives of many other Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox churches. It was a commemoration of 500 years since the Radical Reformation, a commemoration specifically of martyrs from the Anabaptist movement who died there in Vienna and in Austria. Could you describe that event? It was a very special day and in a very special place, as you say, uh, primarily to remember the faithful witness of some of the early Anabaptists who were severely persecuted in Austria. The ones we were remembering actually were executed. Um, Many hundreds of others were um, also Uh, forced to leave Austria during the Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation. And it's been an open wound in a lot of ways in Austria because in some ways the memory of that was was purged from the history books. It wasn't taught in schools. It wasn't remembered in any way. And uh, it also left um, a legacy, I think, of of antagonism and, well, of hatred at the end of the day, um, which is particularly painful when it's among Christians. Um, and so it was a, an opportunity to, to gather together in the, the Stephans Dome, the Cathedral Church of St. Stephen in Vienna, which is effectively the epicenter of Catholicism in Austria, together with the Archbishop of Vienna, Cardinal Schoenborn, who is the father figure for the Catholic Church in Austria, and to remember those who lost their lives actually at the hands of the Catholics and to do it in a way that wasn't casting stones, what wasn't trying to just dredge up the, the mire of the past, but was really just to honor the witness of those who were not respected and whose witness was not appreciated at the time. In fact, Christoph Schoenborn said, in many ways, God was offering something to this country 500 years ago, and the people at that time rejected it. And his longing and hope is that through the witness of the new Bruderhof community in Austria, but also through that event, through that um, evening vesper, that we could remember and possibly open a door for God to offer again such a gift for such a witness to appear in Austria. Quite a humbling thought for me, I have to say, as a member of the Bruderhof community, because in many ways I definitely don't live up to the witness of the Anabaptist forefathers, the early Anabaptists, but it also is a sign of a a completely new attitude, a completely new approach to Christians working together and respecting each other's witnesses, even in the face of differences, without casting stones and without somehow... um, suggesting that the others are not true Christians and not part of the true Christian church. So it was more than anything else a celebration of fellowship. It was a truly remarkable event. And for our listeners, we'll drop a link in the program notes. For my wife, who's a biological descendant of these Austrian Anabaptists uh, who were persecuted and thousands martyred 500 years ago, uh, she was 
completely overwhelmed by this very simple prayer service in the, the cathedral, uh, which she hadn't expected. I, I think one reaction that a lot of people can have to this kind of event, an understandable um, kind of sigh that some people can have, um, when they hear about these kinds of things, and you can actually express it in one of the sessions there, um, a question from a Catholic participant, how often do we have to apologize for bad things that the Catholic Church did in the past? Uh, you could extend that to not just the Catholic Church, but many other people uh, who sometimes tire of apologizing for things that happened long before anyone today was alive. So that's one question I hope to get into a little bit. But before we do, maybe it would be helpful, um, Kim, just to tell the story of what led to this event. Over the past 20 or 30 years, um, there have been quite a number of Christians who've been delving into um, the question of, of the, the lingering scars, the lingering pain of the Reformation, and how one can bri uh, bridge that rift, the antagonism that was let loose in those heady days of the Reformation, has just continued through and, and in a certain sense, even become more and more politicized through the centuries and become more and more a part of the, the history of the Western world and of Christendom. And so these uh, Christians, a number of them who, with whom we're befriended, they have given a lot of thought to this. Um, and one of the ideas that has emerged from their discussions, from their meditations on this, is the idea of identification with the sense of those who've gone before. This idea means speaking straight about the things that went wrong in the past, not holding back, not trying to, to justify or excuse behavior that uh, did create pain and did create um, a lot of division, uh, and, and yet somehow to see that by recognizing, by acknowledging the things that have gone wrong in the past and seeking together, particularly as descendants of various sides of a conflict, um, seeking together for ways to, to overcome that division, that a real healing can happen, something special can happen. And as the century, uh, as around 2010 and, and, and all the planning was underway for this big jubilee 2017, 500 years Lutheran Reformation, there was a real concern among some that this could easily become just a celebration of Protestantism, right? A celebration of Lutheranism without recognizing that there were many other parties in the Reformation and many of them were in fact victims of Luther's um, Reformation and, and Luther's orthodoxy and of the politics that emerged from it. And in particularly, the Anabaptists were victims both of the Catholics and of the Lutherans and the Calvinists and the Zwinglian Swiss Protestants. So they had a longing to have some aspect of 2017 be more comprehensive than just remembering Luther and just, and just glorifying what Luther did, as important as it, as it was. So they started preparing already in 2011, inwardly and outwardly, also doing research to see how one could, could have an event, uh, if you like, one might call it a fringe event to the big Reformation festivals, and, and really try and bring out some of the other aspects of the Reformation that were not so pretty, also not and in, in which the, the Lutherans did not shine so positively. And they invited a range of descendants of Anabaptists, uh, Mennonites and, and Amish, and also representatives from the Bruderhof, to come and join them for that event in Wittenberg, October of 2017. And it was in that context that um, I think really something happened that opened the hearts and touched the hearts of everybody who was there. And as you said before, 
you know, one can almost become jaded sometimes about all the talk about everything that has happened and, and how does one move forward with it. The people that I know who were there um, tell about it just with a glow in their eyes about what happened in that experience, a real meeting of hearts. Just a few weeks after the conference, the representatives from the Catholic Church in Austria who had been there, also on behalf of Christoph Schoenborn, wrote to us at the Bruderhof and asked us, would we consider having a community in Austria? There, there, it's been 450 years since the last Anabaptist community of goods was dissolved in Austrian territory. Isn't it high time that, that this witness somehow reemerges in Austria? And we felt like we couldn't just say no, right? We had never, we didn't have any active interest in Austria, but we did have an active interest in increasing our presence in continental Europe. And we didn't feel like we could just ignore the movement of the spirit that we had experienced in Wittenberg and which was patently gripping the hearts of those uh, people from Austria who were inviting us. So on the back of that, my wife and I were seconded in 2018 to come to Austria and to explore, are these people who are inviting us speaking for a bigger circle of people, or is this just a few individual opinions? Um, is there a legal framework and a, and a societal framework that might welcome an Anabaptist community after such a long gap? And the short answer is, Yes, uh, we, we just met an enthusiastic and warm response um, among everybody that we met. Free churches, the Lutherans, the Swiss Reformed. Uh, it was uh, everybody here, also especially then the Catholics, uh, extended a real hand of welcome and, and enthusiasm. And it, one thing led to another. We established a small community then in 2019 and now a bigger community in 2022 and it is really i can only say um it's something that goes beyond what we as human beings have done it's not anything that my wife and i or or any of us from the Bruderhof have done and it's not even anything that that christoph schoenborn or catholic representatives have done uh, something, the time was ripe, and it was just a real privilege to be a part of starting something new here in Austria. Yeah, I recall, Kim, uh, that it was actually a little bit unnerving, the level of welcome uh, that was extended to us. You know, we as individuals or the Bruderhof as a community, it wasn't about us, but about something beyond um, that we were allowed to play a part in, you know, some knitting together of the body of Christ again. And it's, it's interesting, right? The two communities that the Bruderhof now has in Austria uh, are both in former monasteries, uh, one in Retz on the Czech border in a former Dominican cloister, and uh, the other right outside Vienna, uh, Amstein in a former Franciscan convent. So that's uh, just a kind of nifty sign of spiritual continuity. Let's um, climb into that question, though, of what it means to what it means to repent for the sins of the fathers. I think was a phrase that was used. Um, you know, already Pope John Paul II issued an apology for acts made by those members of the Catholic Church in the past, uh, not only in the Reformation but also uh, in the conversion of the Americas and elsewhere. Uh, especially where coercive measures were used uh, to suppress heretics, uh, as reformers were called. Those efforts parallel secular apologies that have also been made in this country. We, of course, think of the transatlantic slave trade uh, and the dispossession of Native Americans. Every time you know, there's a, a culture of apology almost that can seem cheap, that can seem like a form of cheap grace. And one of the things that really impressed me is that it's actually not a cheap thing to apologize for the sins of the fathers, to use that biblical terminology, for uh, the guilt of 
one's ancestors, both you know biological ancestors and and one's forerunners uh, in whatever tradition one belongs. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you mentioned the word identification, which is different than vicarious repentance, right? Um, those are two different things. And it's kind of important to, to distinguish between kind of wallowing in ancestral guilt versus what happened in Vienna, which was something very different than wallowing, that was my experience. Yes, I can definitely say it's been tremendously interesting and challenging for us to, hope, to deal with this whole, I guess, theological side of uh, how does one deal with the sins of the past, the sins of the fathers, so to speak? Because we all know and recognize that these things have consequences that linger into the present day. And I grew up in Alabama and uh, the history of the Trail of Tears and, and the treatment of Native Americans. And then also, the, of course, the treatment of African Americans and the the whole slave trade and, and plantation economy of the South um, had tremendous negative impact, not only on individuals, but also on the whole fabric of society. And this thing, th these kind of, this damage, this, this um, injustice, this, these sins, effectively, um, they do linger in the sense that, that there are many aspects of society today where one could say we're worse off because of things that were done in the past. And yet, as you point out, and as I read the Bible, it's not possible for us to somehow um, become surrogate repentance or, or penitence for the things that happened in the past. I, I have no way uh, every soul and everybody who lived in the past has to stand before God's judgment, and God offers grace and judgment, um, and each individual person and, and each society ultimately has to uh, face the, the judgment of God. And we can't change that in the sense that now I'm going to repent, and, and so God will be more gracious to the people a hundred years ago or five hundred years ago. On the other hand, when we do see that there are lingering problems that exist because of things that have happened in the past, then it's also a challenge because I don't want to just go around feeling guilty about what my great-grandparents may have done. My wife is German and there's a huge challenge for, for younger Germans. We're not so young anymore, I guess, but uh, post-war Germans to deal with what, what actually happened in the Second World War, what happened during the Holocaust. And, um, and clearly, a lot of our direct ancestors were involved in that. And the answer cannot be, on the one hand, the answer cannot be just to feel guilty about it and just you know, hang your head in shame and wish that you were not German or wish that you were not part of the, the people who dealt with, who, who committed these atrocities. One wants to do something in response. And, and when we also see the, the consequences that linger on in, even into the present day, then we also wish for healing. We want to do something that can also bring about healing, that can bring about, um, if you like, the vision of of Martin Luther King Jr., the, the day when the sons of, of former slaves and the sons of former slaveholders will sit together at one table. So how do we, how do we make that happen? And, uh, and, and this idea of identification actually is taken largely, I think you mentioned, from the Old Testament, the prime example being actually the prophet Daniel, who cries out to God and says, we we, our people have sinned. It wasn't Daniel himself personally, and it was all something that had happened uh, generations before. But we sinned against you, and it's right, it's right that we were punished. It's, it's just that there were consequences um, to that. But now, please, God, be gracious and, and help us to find a new course, a new way that overcomes uh, not only the sins of the past, but also overcomes the consequences of the sins of the past. 
And this plea uh, to God, uh, then also God responds. Uh, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, God heard you just the moment you spoke, right? In that very moment when you spoke, God heard you, and it opened something in the world of the Spirit. And I think that's the longing that we have felt for many of the people that we've been working with in Austria here, that to me, it goes beyond just, oh, I'm so sorry that this happened. It's not a question of apologizing. It's a question of looking the problems that we face today straight in the eye, recognizing also that they are in part directly influenced by things that happened in the past that were unjust. And, and to say, we want to turn away from that attitude of the past, and we want to turn towards something new that can overcome that. So I think that you know, the overriding thing that we felt is that there's a spiritual dynamism in it. There's a spiritual aspect to it that goes beyond just the intellectual working through, the sociological working through of this cause and effect, and somehow trying to stand together um, no, no pointing fingers, no throwing stones, just we're all weak people and our forefathers and forebears were all weak people, but we want to stand now before God and ask him to be gracious in our day and allow something to happen that was hindered in the past. And, and that's what I felt the most strongly in that gathering in November and continue to feel that there's just this longing you mentioned that we've taken over two monasteries here, and we've met also with the Franciscan sisters, all old now, they're all in their 80s and even 90s. They had to move out of this convent because they just simply were not, they were too few and too old to even maintain it. And it stood a number of years empty, but their longing and their hope and their prayer was that something new, some spiritual life, some new spiritual life would come into these old walls and that, and that new breath would come in. And I wish you could experience what it's like to talk with them. The enthusiasm that they have for this new community beginning in their old, in their, on their old stomping grounds, right? The place where they had put, invested their hearts and strength and, and souls into building community. And they come now and they see the children and, and families playing and laughing and singing. And they just, uh, they, just uh, they just overflow with joy. Tears literally flowing out of their eyes just with the joy that something new can be given. And one old sister, 90 years old, former mother superior here, she turns to my wife and she says, you know what? We have to decline but you have to gain, right? She quoted from John the Baptist as he spoke to Jesus. Um, our day is passing, but now a new day is dawning. And I think that, <laughs> I don't know how to express it, but it just goes beyond anything I could possibly have imagined uh, in this country where, you know, a relatively short time ago, Anabaptists were completely, viewed as complete heretics, right? It would have been as if we were turning it into a, a, a mosque or something. And yet now a completely different feeling um, has arisen. And I think in large part because of these efforts by many people who are looking at this spiritual dimension of identification with, with the things that have gone wrong in the past. Hearing you talk about it, um just makes me so eager to visit. Um, obviously, I was there recently and I didn't get to. One of the things that reading the account of um, this meeting and various meetings has made me think about is just the concreteness of the teaching of the communion of saints in a couple of different weird ways. Um, one of them is that, you know, I've always kind of thought about like, all right, think about all the different martyrs of the Reformation, Catholic and Protestant and Anabaptist, you know, I do kind of have this sense of like, you know, they die and then they find themselves with each other praying for the, for the, the church that they just, the, the church militant that they just left, um, that's militant against itself. 
um, in that time. And that sense of the communion of saints that was, that already happened, um, sort of, you know, in, before God at, you know, at that time, it seems as though, um, that's really being lived out. Like that's now coming to that community of saints that's happening in the, in the church triumphant is now kind of getting funneled back down into the church militant. Um, in a way that just seems incredible to me, especially given the kind both the Catholic and the Anabaptist emphasis on, you know, it's not just an invisible unity. Like you do actually have to have, you can't just say with the Lutherans, well, you know, invisible church, you actually do have to have the visible unity. Like we're going for that. And it, it just, it's an incredible, it's an incredible thing to see the way that God works through history to get that visible unity back. You know, it strikes me in, in thinking about reckoning with the past, right? Uh, what, uh, the Germans have a special term for that, don't they, Kim? Vergangenheitsweltigung. Yes. You know, um, <laughs> It's interesting, but the people that we work with, they avoid that term. But Vergangenheitsbewältigung kind of has a sense of, of coping. And the people that we know who are, who are involved in this identification, this identification movement, um, they say what we need is Geschichtsaufarbeitung. We have to take the past and we have to work through it. We have to reuse it as clay towards making something new, recasting it into a future that meshes with what we know the kingdom of God is calling us to. And, and I think that this idea of Bewältigung um, has, has really, or Geschichtsbewältigung, has, has really um, in some ways been... I don't want to say misused, but it's certainly gotten a bad taste in the post in post-war Germany in many ways, because what it effectively has meant is exactly the thing that you brought up earlier on. It's just rehashing the same things again and again. And it's described as coping, but it's not actually coping at all. It's just describing our helplessness, re, re reiterating again and again our helplessness in the face of what has gone before the monstrosity of it. And and what I've appreciated about this identification approach or this Aufarbeitung approach is that it's trying to to make something positive out of what we we all recognize was is an ill, you know, there's nothing good you can say about it. And yet that's the very message of the of the gospels is that God can turn I think it was Kierkegaard who said that the grace of God is what makes the wrong turn out better than the right ever could have turned out to be. That's what redemption means. That's what, what it means, I think, if the blood of Christ redeems also the sins of the past. It has to mean more than just, okay, yeah, now we can move on. We don't have to think about that anymore. It means taking that raw material, which is really, really ugly and raw, and, and and seeing it transformed into something that, that brings a benefit to future generations. You know, in thinking about all of these kinds of things, it seems, you know, if you're a Christian, you're asking for a lot. You're asking for real forgiveness and real restoration and something that is better than what came before. Um, and all the horrors of history kind of go into, get caught up in that. Um in ways that we don't understand. Um, it feels really bold to even think about. It is bold, but I think desperate times call for desperate measures. And I think that we, if you push hard enough against somebody and against their family and their background and their ties and, and, and simply make, you know, make a person try to feel guilty, ultimately, you know, if a person gets the feeling that they're being made to feel guilty for things that they themselves had nothing to do with, for simply being a descendant of people who did things that were wrong. Uh, that's a kind of judgmentalism that almost demands a reaction against it. 
So I think the only answer going forward is, is the answer of the gospel. We have to stand together. Every one of us is a sinner before God. Not one of us can stand righteous before God's throne. Um, and, and, you know, who knows what future generations will, will have to cope with as a, as a fruit of what we're doing today. And so we have no ground to stand above. But we do have a responsibility to recognize that the things that have gone wrong in the past require repentance. Uh, they require a redemption. They require redemption. They require this, what Susanna was just saying, this um, restorative um, moment that, that makes it come out good in the end, that, that, that makes it all build as part of God's history. And, and that's what's been a great privilege of being part of it here in Austria, spe specifically with respect to the Reformation. Well, thank you, Kim. And it's going to be exciting to see how this all develops going forward. And now we'll be speaking with Anika Prather. Dr. Prather is a Christian. She's a wife. She's a mother. She is a professor at Howard University. Um, she is the founder of Living Waters School. Um, and she has various other projects um, going on at all times, um, some of which we'll end up talking about on this podcast. Um, Anika is also um, a, a friend. We kind of ran into each other up at Fox Hill, um, the Bruderhof community that Plow was published out of, I guess, last year. Um, and, you know, you can find her on Twitter. Remind me of your handle. <laughs> Anika Free Indeed. Anika Free Indeed. You can find her on Twitter where she is a superstar of kind of like emotional and intellectual, um, I don't know, charity engagement in a, uh, in a social media environment, which is not always conducive to that, shall we say. Um, and she also has a piece in the current issue. The piece is called The Griefs of Childhood. And she, do you want to just sort of talk about writing that piece, what occasioned it, and the, the year that you had? Well, I was really excited when Plow asked me to write about it because it had been something I had been wanting to write. Uh, we have three young kids. Um, one, My oldest just turned 12, mother just turned, my second son just turned 10, and my, my daughter just turned 8. And they had never really dealt with a lot of tragedy or hard times in their life. Um, and um, we found ourselves immediately, as soon as the virus started, thrust into a, a time period of horrendous loss of people that were close to them and close to us as a family, through very tragic ways, some through COVID, but very tragically COVID, like one minute being alive and well, and within two days, can't breathe and gone. And these were people that older people that would play with my kids and just made a lasting impact. One of them was a my first cousin who was also my kid's Sunday school teacher. And so um, he passed. Um, one was their art teacher and, he's, um, and he passed of a heart attack while driving. And it was, some things weren't COVID related and some were just, you know, death. And we had a couple of suicides, a couple of murders, um, cancer, um, strokes, like just, um, people that we loved so much um, dying. I I was not able to put on the strong face for my kids. And I, I worried about that. I worried about how all of this death would affect them. And as I was praying through that, I just felt God tell me, let them grieve with me. Like instead of like running off into a room and crying to get myself together to get strong to be with them, let them run with me, <laughs> let them run together let them fall on the floor and cry with me and I just thought that was such wisdom from him because I never would have thought of doing anything I didn't hide the details of what happened um we talked a lot about death um we faced death we faced the reality of we may die I I talked about I may die daddy may die and I don't want you to be angry at God if one of us dies or if mama papa dies or your cousin dies we don't get angry at God and um, we talked about the, the theological um, foundations of death, how we as Christians see death. And um, what I saw happen for myself is strength. I became much stronger than I thought I would be. I began to be able to heal from the losses. 
Um, because as I was talking to, as, as me and my children were talking about heaven and the promise of heaven and how death is not the end and how we live this life is so important because we want to prepare for eternity. I began to really value heaven while you're alive and well, heaven seems very far off. And, um, I'll, I'll, the, the, the test of this healing happened when I lost my best friend. He was a very dear friend. My husband and I and his wife and him, we had all gone to a jazz concert, I think like the year before, at this place called Blues Alley in D.C., in Georgetown. And it was a wonderful time. The guy's like almost seven feet tall. I mean, he's a larger than life, loves God, just really vibrant personality. And I had just texted him 24 hours before his passing, just calling to check on you. His mother had just passed away. Are you okay? And he just wrote me back. I'm good. Thanks for checking in. I want you to know that you're my favorite singer. Um, and just a really loving exchange. So in talking to my kids, it allowed me to thank God for the life of the person, mm-hmm. for the for the blessing of being able to be connected to him right up to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, um, he was such a strong Christian. I know that I know that he's with God right mm-hmm. now. Um, and I began to really find comfort in that, that yeah. he's with God and he's, we, I know where he is. He's at peace. We'll see each other again as I comforted my kids through that. And so, um, and so then, so then that was my journey. And so we, we walked through death together, crying together. I took them to funerals. I allowed them to see as people were sick. And if we could visit, we would go. And what happened instead of, of them becoming traumatized by it, they became not afraid of death so much. And mm-hmm. They came to know that God does allow trials sometimes. And then the final thing that happened was when they lost their art teacher, which was, I think, the most recent passing we've experienced. Um, we have his artwork that he did with my children around the house. It decorates their playroom. Uh, but when he died, I was so distraught about that because I was very close to him as well. And my youngest son says, Mommy, did his name was Coltrane. I called him. He said, Mom, was, was Coltrane a Christian? I said, yes. He said, well, you know, now when people I love pass away, I, I remember that they're with God. It always makes me feel better. And this is, at the time he was nine, uh-huh. telling me this. Uh-huh. So here's a nine-year-old telling a 48-year-old uh-huh. this. And, I, and, it, and it comforted me, you know. Uh-huh. And so yeah. that's that's how this article came out, just reflecting on this very important life lesson that everything is not going to be good and happy for our kids all the time. We can't always protect them from that. I mean, coming in the context of this apocalypse issue, this really does. I mean, it, it seems it's, it is apocalypse as the end of their world. I mean, it is, it is their, it is their judgment day is there is the time when their hearts are revealed before God. And it's also apocalypse in the sense of like the unveiling of you know, we walk around as Christians saying we believe this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, then this happens and, and you're like, oh, well, this is real. Like this is Christianity is not something that we like use as a, you know, philosophical system to just make sense yeah. of our our lives. This is like a concrete hope. And I just I, I felt like the issue of the magazine needed that piece as a kind of very concrete anchor to what we're talking about as Christians when we talk about apocalypse. In the midst of all this, you've also not been, you've not been otherwise idle. You have been extremely busy um, doing, pursuing a kind of really interesting life project um, from what I can tell, um, which, which involves your own scholarship as well as, um, you know, the school that you started. Can you just sort of tell Tell our listeners what that is. My overall desire is to use classics to bring racial healing. Like that's my ultimate vision. And I came to that conclusion as I watched black activists use classics to fight for liberation, but not fight for liberation in a way to hurt anyone, but to heal America, to make America what it should be. Mm-hmm. And watching that pattern made me realize it is possible for us to do that today. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so the school um, is predominantly black, 
but it is set up for anyone to attend. It's not only focused on black history. It, it talks about everyone's history and how we all work together um, and have equal um, equally participated in humanity's progress and in the progress of America. So it's set up that way. <clears throat> and so, so the school I desire to be kind of like this training ground for young minds to continue to think as I'm thinking about this thing, mm -hmm. um, how to engage with people who may not think like you, to have dialogue. Our Bible lessons are taught through dialogue. Um, There's it, it just a lot of dialogue. Socratic dialogue is kind of interwoven throughout, throughout the day. And, um, and being open to hearing other people's opinions and thoughts and, and, and respectfully agree or disagree. And then there's math and science and all the other things too. And then there's this sense of democracy and freedom where we all vote for decisions. I don't make final decisions. Yeah. I didn't even get the new building that we just got without having the students vote on it first. And then the parents yeah. voted on it. And then that's when I signed the lease. Um, just this sense of I am an equal participant in democracy. And I, as a human being, have control over, I own my body to do what I think mm -hmm. is best for it. So that's another thing. And I don't mean that in a liberal sense. I want to be clear on that, mm -hmm. too. <laughs> um, but I mean it in a humanity sense, meaning yeah. if I feel called to be a singer, I have the right to pursue, use my time during school time. I'm given free time to work on music, to work on yeah. gaming, to work on art, to work on writing um, a, a, another student learned how to build computers. So we have this free time, a lot of free time built into the school day, but the students have to use that freedom working on something. Um, and, and when I say something, it doesn't have to be something that I think is okay. As long as it's not displeasing to God, we want them to pursue all these yeah. different interests and passions. Yeah. So there, so we feel that in, in the midst of all of that, you're learning what it means to be human, how to relate to other human beings and to give everyone liberty and democracy um, mm -hmm. and, and to live that out um, um, and that sense of equality. So that's the school. And then uh, my work in you know teaching at the university level is, is giving that same vision packaged in a 50 minute class <laughs> as we discuss various black classic, black classicists or blacks who read classics, but we don't just read um, black authors. We read the classics that they read so they can cross-reference and see, well, why were they reading this text? Um, why did they find value in this text? Um, um, and then finally, the final part of my puzzle is um, wanting to have, um, I didn't wait, I didn't want to wait for a college or university to take on this project. Um, I decided to start this museum called the Blacks and Classics Museum. And it's going to be um, in Old Town Alexandria. But this work is taking place in a context in which, over the last two years, uh, the accusation, the remark has been made and grown ever stronger that classics and the, the classical tradition is fundamentally racist and should be dismantled. Uh, and you've been pretty passionate about that. I just wonder if you could reflect on, on that. You know, catch us up on your thinking why is it important, you know, why is it important there would be such a thing as this uh, museum? Why is it important uh, that the black intellectual tradition uh, be highlighted in its connection to the classics? I'm going to answer that question by talking about Martin Luther King. Um, and not because he's, everyone wants to talk about Martin Luther King, but I, I would like to say a lot of people don't understand him, really. Um, because if you ask the average person, what did he accomplish? Most would say, I have a dream speech, and he marched on a bridge. But they don't realize that all of his work led to some type of change in legislation. Like, he wasn't just marching and nothing happened. He marched, he, he, he pushed people to vote, uh, pushed for the right to vote, because he felt that there was a lot of power in that. He was very political and very strategic. When he would get arrested, they were all strategically planned. He would literally sit and plan for everyone to get arrested. Everyone knew, young or old, when we do this, we want to get arrested. Uh, and then he would raise the bail money before they did it. We want to dramatize, you know, you know what's happening to us. We're not doing anything. We're not causing any violence, but here we are praying, kneeling, 
being arrested and hit with clubs. And then the bail money would already be ready. By the time they got locked behind a jail cell, they'd have to let them out because they'd have all the bail money raised. And they would do this repeatedly. Now, how did this kind of thinking to create such a powerful force happen? Because he was classically educated. If you read his autobiography, he was on the debate team. He did recitations. All of the key components of a classical education that we know of, he mentions. And so he was classically educated. And he graduates at 16 from high school, right? And he goes to college at Morehouse. And as a 16-year-old, 16, 17-year-old, his first essay, I think, in college was on civil disobedience. I don't know any 70-year-old who's interested in civil disobedience or anything that Henry David Thoreau would have to say right now. And so at 16, Martin Luther King develops this vision for the civil rights movement. And that vision came from watching his father being mistreated as a black man and him feeling helpless as a young boy to stand up for his father, who he highly respected. And so, but, but he knew that this couldn't be something that could just be fought with, you know, with guns or violence. It had to be done strategically, it had to be done logically. So not only was he very strategic and very logical, he was a master at rhetoric, which is why his, his letters and his speeches are so powerful. And he won awards for being on the debate team. And so um, all of that comes from his classical education. So if we get rid of classics, we get rid of that story. Everyone obviously is cites Letter from Birmingham Jail, and everyone is made to read it. And I, I, basically, my case is that Dr. King is the location of traditional Thomistic ethics in American history. I mean, you could make a case a little bit for Lincoln, but there's not really anyone else in the kind of canon of people that you're supposed to read in high school that are talking about American politics who explain natural law in that very straightforward, very traditional, very, um, you know, straight out of St. Thomas, straight out of the treatise on law um, way. And, you know, especially when you're kind of like talking about these ideas with, um, you know, my family tend to be typical New York City progressives who are kind of suspicious of like all my weird natural law stuff and my and my annoying Thomism. But like if you explain it as like this is, you know, you know you already know this. Like the ethics that you taught me because you raised me, you know, reading Dr. King are yes. that's where he got those ethics. Like that the, the idea that an unjust law is no law at all. Like that even that phrase, that's in the American bloodstream because of him. I mean, and he says that um, in the first, his autobiography, and he talks about how um, the works of the can the philosophers, he named these philosophers, which were all in the canon, helped him to formulate the civil rights movement. And, you know, it's just, and so I, I actually cringe when people say we need to get rid of classics, because as a black woman, I'm like, you're getting rid of part of my history. And I can't, I know we're upset with how they've been misused. We, I, I'm not, I'm not denying that. But if you don't read the classics that he read, you won't really fully understand what he's talking about. You won't even really fully talk, understand the style of writing when Zora Neale Hurston writes, um, their eyes were watching God, which is, you can see very much inspired by the Odyssey. And so Zora Neale Hurston, part of being part of the Harlem Renaissance, all of those authors, Langston Hughes, Ellen Locke, all of them read the canon. As Ellen Locke says in his um, New Negro essay, they wanted to stop telling the black story as some just tragic, violent story. Mm-hmm. All that, it's true, you know, and they do include the story, but they wanted it to be beautiful and mm-hmm. art, an art, and art uh, a, a work of art mm-hmm. that, that you would value it the way you would value the Odyssey and the beauty of that mm-hmm. story. And so they would gather, they would talk about these these texts together and they would write literature. Like when Langston, who, uh, Langston Hughes writes, uh, I think it's the Negro Speaks of Rivers, I think, is, it, is, it how, is that the title? You know, he's talking about the, you know, our journey as black people from, you know, ancient Africa into America. Um, all of it is about our beautiful, tragic, victorious mm-hmm. journey. 
mm-hmm. um, that those of the Harlem Renaissance wanted to show people this is art. This is creative. This is not just some black story over there. This is something you should value the way you would value the Iliad and in, in mm-hmm. any other epic that you would, you know, read and say, oh, this is wonderful, that this is an intellectual text for you to read and discuss and digest. And so they were very much motivated by, by, by reading these works. And so when you take it, you don't understand the motivation behind them all. You need to allow them to have the roots that they, the intellectual roots that they did have. Yes. Yes. And, you know, even Booker T. Washington, even though he was not a supporter of classical education in the black community, was successful and intellectual and who he was because of his reading of various works of the canon. Mm-hmm. But he but he got it for himself, but then wanted to show an easier, yeah. quicker way to his people, um, which I don't think he had ill meaning for that. I think he was yeah. really just being protective. I used to really talk bad about Booker T. And my father had to set me straight. Um, <laughs> but he was like, you can't, he's, he was a man of his time. He, was, he came out of slavery. Like he probably saw yeah. some horrible violence and th- he probably was, I mean, a man who was, he became wealthy. He started a college. He had to be very careful on how he spoke uh, in order to have any success, you know? Yeah. This is a bit of a weird question, but like I did mention earlier, you, you tend to conduct yourself on Twitter in a way that's really distinct. Um, I haven't really seen anyone else do it quite as, uh, as persistently as you do. Um, do you want to like, how, to what degree did you like decide to, like, are you just this way? Are you just? Suzanne is saying, tell us how to be, tell us how to behave on Twitter, please, Anika. Well, um, first of all, I'm a pastor's daughter. And um, when you're a pastor's kid, um, you often deal with a lot of negativity, gossip, and just kind of just a lot of meanness. And so you kind of develop this um, tough skin, like this, like, like you can't let it get to you or you won't be able to <laughs> enjoy life. Um, and I, I'm wondering if that has kind of transferred over into Twitter. Like I am used to people saying mean things to me <laughs> and I find a lot of comfort in who knowing who my friends are. So if I know who my friends are, who my family is, who my tribe, now I don't want to say tribe, who my community is, then I don't really care what anybody else says. And, um, but the other piece to that is, um, I, I didn't want to go on Twitter. Jeremy Tate made me go on Twitter, <laughs> and I fought it tooth and nail. And um, and when he when he messaged me and said I need to get on, I was like, I hate that place. Um, he said, but you you gotta be heard. So when he convinced me to do it, I made the decision I was not gonna do the toxic thing under any circumstances. That it was only going to be for positive reasons, connecting with people, encouraging people, inspiring people. Um, and that if that toxicity found its way in my space, I would try to douse that fire if I could. And my favorite verse is, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be just like him. I mean, it's such a waste of time to respond to people who I'll never meet, who have nothing to do with my life. If you feel like you can't control your tongue, just push the, it's like really easy. You just go to the thing that says, and just block it really quick. And you'll just feel like so free. It's very liberating. And then you can just go on and talk to your friends at the Bruderhall community or anyone else out there who I, that brings me joy and just engage with them. And then, and then you also find the exciting thing is you find new friends. And sometimes people can be negative, but there's usually something they'll say that lets me know that they're not really, that's not their heart, that they really are trying to understand where I'm coming from, but maybe not can't find the words. So I usually have like this three strikes you're out thing. Like I'll engage with you for a little bit just to make sure where you're coming from. And eventually a lot of times I can find out that we have something in common. The person's not out to destroy my life. They just misunderstood something I said. I misunderstood something they said. Um, We've chosen to agree to disagree, but still find each other pretty cool. And we move on. Um, But just don't waste any energy on hating hateful people. So that's my number one rule. And then finally, I feel like in such a public space as Twitter, um, I, I do have a mandate from God to spread his light and love. And I, f- I do feel that it's kind of almost like, I know this sounds weird, I hope y'all don't think I'm crazy. I almost feel like he's looking at me like, 
don't even. Like, the times I want to say something back, he's looking at me, I, I, don't say it. You're not representing me. That does not represent me. And I feel like I represent him. And I feel like if I do it, any if I say something hateful or mean, that it deflects from the love of God. And I really want to reflect that as much as possible. It's not just positivity. It's also just curiosity. And there is a kind of Socratic engagement. You'll pick out the one thing in someone's snarky, you know, response where they're accusing you of being sort of like having false consciousness as a black woman, or they're accusing you of being woke, or they're accusing you of like all the thousands, like from the left or from the right or whatever it is, you'll pull out the kind of the, the nugget, the clue that they gave you that they have an idea or that they have an actual question. And you'll pull that out of the sort of miasma of accusation. Um, and you'll actually end up having a conversation with them. And, um, I've tried to do that too, and it's really hard. <laughs> also, I'll, if I can't figure out the question, I'll just say, can you explain what you mean or why do you say that? Um, I'll even ask, what in my tweets did, made you feel the way you feel? Because also, you know, a lot a lot of times we're just misunderstanding each other, I think. You know, I mean, I spent most of my life, uh, because of all the racism I went through, not trusting white people. I mean, really, I didn't. Um and then at St. John's College, I, I was I was just there to get a master's. I thought I was just going to get my education and be done with it. I went thinking that it was not going to be a positive experience. I was going to be the only black person there, that I'm going to deal with a whole bunch of racism. It's going to be just same old, same old. Uh, but I went and actually had conversations with people who don't look like me or even think like me. And it was the most beautiful experience. And that was a, that was a real life changer that maybe I needed to... Not I, I, I'm not saying we should forget our pain. I'm not saying we should ignore racism that is still in existence today. But be slow to judge and be gracious mm-hmm. and try to learn where, where people's hearts are. I don't know if this is something you want to talk about, but you also have a recent self-published book. Yeah, um, my book is Living in the Constellation of the Canon, The Lived Experiences of African-American Students Reading Great Books Literature. It was It's my dissertation. And then I also have another book called The Black Intellectual Tradition that I wrote with Angel Parham that's coming, that's, that's I think, just about to be out this, later on this month. We've talked a lot about education. And what what is it when you look at children and the young people and the students that you work with, What is the what is the goal of education? What... Where are you trying to get them to? My father gave me this quote, and it is on the mission vision of my school's page. And it says this, and this, this was um, what he used to have to say when he was in college, um, at his college. At, um, at the time, it was AM and N College, um, it's a historically Black um, college. Um, University of Arkansas, Pine Bluff is what it's called now. But um, this is the quote. The end of education is to know God, and the laws and purposes of his universe, and to reconcile one's life with these laws. The first aim of a good college is not to teach books, but the meaning and purpose of life. Hard study and the learning of books are only a means to this end. We develop power and courage and determination, and we go out to achieve truth, wisdom, and justice. And to me, that is, the way I see what I'm doing. I feel the books are a tool to discover goodness, virtue, beauty, justice. We don't say the word justice oftentimes when we talk about classical education. We say goodness, beauty, truth, virtue, but we leave off justice. But the word says that we should, you know, what does the Lord require of us? You know, that we should pursue justice, but we got to pursue it in the right way. And we can only do that when we read good books that give us noble ways of addressing injustice. And, um, and so I'm hoping to create students at the school that know God and how that knowledge permeates every part of their life, that they read good books and how that knowledge helps them navigate and fight through life. And so that's, and, and how to be a good human, so. I have to remember that. Well, thank you so much, Anika, for this conversation. It's always so, so great to talk. Thank you all so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And for a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. 
You can also subscribe. $32 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books, to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as an extra advisory council. Go to plow.com slash subscribe to learn more. Join us next week as we talk with Chris Tollefson about nuclear war and the obligation of nuclear disarmament post-Ukraine, and with Samuel Moyne about humanitarian war and the big question, can war be humane or not? Ooh.